Well, tonight what I wanted to do is just kind of look at the introductory remarks that he had at the beginning of the book and then walk through the first chapter together. As we think about knowing God, one of the things that he talks about in the opening of the introduction, the preface of the book, is he makes a difference, a distinction between what he calls balconiers and travelers. And he uses as an illustration uh, people that are actually walking on the road and people that are sitting on a balcony watching people walk on the road. And he says there's a difference in their outlook. There's a difference in the way that they talk. There's a difference in the way in the observations that they make. So you might have a couple of people sitting on a balcony talking, making comments about walkers that they see on the road, maybe being critical or saying why'd they go that way or why are they carrying that? Why are they walking like that? But for the people who are actually on the road doing the walking, doing the traveling, they have a different perspective. So balconiers are onlookers and their problems are theoretical only. But travelers face problems which, though they have their theoretical angle, are essentially practical. Which way do we go? How do we make it? So more of a practical orientation. And he says, knowing God is a book for travelers. So his intention in this book is not to know more about God from a, just a theoretical or an academic perspective, but to know God so that we might worship him so that we might live in obedience before him, so that we might uh, live out the Christian life that he's called us to. So it's his intention is that it would be a practical study. He says in the beginning of the book, this is really the conviction, the, the main uh, driving force of the book, and that is the conviction behind the book is that ignorance of God, ignorance both of his ways and of the practice of communion with him lies at the root of much of the church's weakness today. And then he says, two unhappy trends seem to have produced this state of affairs. So he's written a book called Knowing God because he perceived a, an epidemic of ignorance of God in the church. And this was written back in 1973. And I was, as I was reading this preface, I was struck by really how prophetic in some ways uh, he was in some of the things that he said and seeing some of the patterns that were already unfolding then that we've seen now kind of in their full bloom uh, now. But uh, even in his day in 1973, he saw that uh, there was a general weakness in understanding who God was. And, and this is not just in the culture at large. This is within the church knowing who God is and having an appreciation for the greatness of God. And he says, this has come about because of two trends. And one of those trends, he says, is that Christian minds have been conformed to the modern spirit. The spirit that is, uh, that spawns great thoughts of man and leaves room for only small thoughts of God. So the spirit of the age. And he says, this spirit of the age has infected the church, has infected Christians, to where we become so enamored with uh, what we have accomplished as people, uh, technology, and even more so now than 1973. We get so enamored with what we have accomplished in terms of technology and advancement. Look what we have done. And God, in our vision, becomes smaller and smaller and smaller. And so... 
He says, uh, the modern way with God is to set him at a distance, if not to deny him altogether. And he says, the irony is that modern Christians preoccupied with maintaining religious practices in an irreligious world have themselves allowed God to become remote. So God has become small. God has become distant, even among Christians in the church. So that's one trend, just the spirit of the age, the modern spirit. Man is big, God is small. And he says the second trend is that Christian minds have been confused by the modern skepticism. This is one of the things that I thought was really kind of prophetic in him writing this in 1973, because he's writing this really before the full onslaught of postmodernism. And postmodernism as a philosophy is all about skepticism. Postmodernism as a philosophy is about there is no truth. Or if there is truth, we can't know it. It's, it's impossible to know. And so everything in postmodernism becomes relative. And one of the things that postmodernism is known for is what is called deconstructionism. Uh, deconstructionism is we want to take institutions in society, whether it be in economics or education or government or religion, academics, whatever it is, and we want to deconstruct it because this, this thing has built up over the years and basically we want to pull the foundation out from underneath it and, and start over. And you can see that happening in a lot of our culture, uh, a lot of traditions just thrown out, a lot of ethics thrown out. Uh, in all spheres of life. And a lot of that is the result of postmodernism. But he's saying this 46 years ago, that Christian minds have been confused by the modern skepticism. And he says this in this context, he says, for more than three centuries, the naturalistic leaven in the Renaissance outlook has been working like a cancer in Western thought. 17th century Arminians and Deists, like 16th century Socinians, came to deny, as against Reformation theology, that God's control of his world was either direct or complete. And theology, philosophy, and science have for the most part combined to maintain that denial ever since. And so for the last three, four hundred years, there has been a direct onslaught against the truths of the Bible. The Bible's not true. The Bible's just written by man. Trying to, every, every avenue that they possibly can, archaeology, theology, history, everything is looking to undercut the, the truth and the supremacy of the scriptures. So a, a very skeptical mindset. So he says these two mindsets have infiltrated the church. And as a result, a lot of Christians have a small view of God or a deficient, for sure, view of God. He gives a quote at the beginning of the first chapter and the first chapter, as we walk into this, is, is about how are we going to study God? Why should we study God? How, how should we go about it? And he quotes Charles Spurgeon at the beginning of the chapter. He says, the highest science, the loftiest speculation, the mightiest philosophy, which can ever engage the attention of a child of God, is the name, the nature, the person, the work, the doings, and the existence of the great God whom he calls his father. That is the supreme goal of mankind, he says. The supreme study of mankind is to know God. Not science. Now, this would be totally 
radically opposed by our culture, wouldn't it? They would say the, the most important study is how to prevent hunger, how to prevent famine, how to cure cancer, how to make the world a better place. And he's saying, really, from an eternal perspective, what's even more important than all of those things is to know our Creator, to know our God. And to know him not just in an academic way, but in a personal way as our father. He goes on and he says, I know nothing which can so comfort the soul, so calm the swelling billows of sorrow and grief, so speak peace to the winds of trial as a devout musing upon the subject of the Godhead. That quote struck me because of the study that we just finished. Uh, we had just finished talking about depression in the Christian life. And in the context of that study, we talked about Charles Spurgeon. And Charles Spurgeon himself battling with depression, severe depression at times. And here he says that one of the things that has helped him to bring him solace and comfort is to think deep thoughts of God, of who God is. And he says, this can bring a great peace and comfort to our troubled hearts. In the first chapter, uh, J.I. Packer asked the question, who needs theology? Why should we do this? Why should we read a book like this? And he gives kind of a, uh, maybe a thought that a lot of people would have, and that is that theology is boring. Theology is dry. We, we don't need it. We can go on and live without it. And you might even hear something like this from a Christian perspective. Uh, we don't need theology. It's boring. We can do on without it. We can live the Christian life without theology. And what J.F. Packer says in the chapter is basically that's impossible. You cannot live the Christian life without theology. Really, you can't live life at all without some kind of theology in the sense that everyone has to have a view or a perspective of who God is, of whether God exists at all, and if he does exist, what kind of a God he is. So everyone, as R.C. Sproul said one time, everyone is a theologian. Everyone's a theologian because everyone has thoughts of God in one way, shape, fashion, or another. And those thoughts of God and of his world influence the way that we interact with that world and the way that we live in that world. So if you're an atheist and you deny completely the existence of God, that's a theology, right? I mean, that's a form of thinking, studying about God. You're denying his existence, but it's still a way of thinking about God and of interacting with the world. If you're an atheist, you're going to interact with the world and live your life in a completely different way than someone who is a theist, who believes there is a creator God, who holds us accountable. You're going to approach life a completely different way. And so he says knowing about God is crucially important for the living of our lives. So the more that we know about him, the more that we learn of him, it, the greater impact that it has on the actual practical living of our lives. He says, we are cruel to ourselves if we try to live in this world without knowing about the God whose world it is and who runs it. Think of it this way, and this is just an illustration. Uh, 
think about uh, trying to put together a complex um, you know, piece of furniture that you pull out of the box or a uh, complex machine or something, and there are no instructions, and wouldn't that be a frustrating experience? You're trying to put this together. Where does this piece go? What does this do? Essentially, if we're going to not think about God, the God who made this world, that's essentially how we're trying to live life. We're trying to live life without God, without the, the creator and his instruction manual on, on how this world works and how it's put together and how it's supposed to function. And so he says we're robbing ourselves. We're depriving ourselves if we don't seek to know our God. In the chapter, he makes this statement. He says, disregard the study of God and you sentence yourself to stumble and blunder through life blindfolded with no sense of direction and no understanding of what surrounds you. This way you can waste your life and lose your soul. So we need this orientation of, of knowing God in order to live in his world. But he warns us, he says, as we study this, as we think about God, we're heading into a storm. And that storm is we're studying God, we're thinking about God in the midst of a God-denying world. And so there's going to be uh, people who mock. What do you need to think about God for? Uh, why spend so much time reading the Bible? Why, why think about theological truths? What's the point? And so he says, when we, when we seek to know more of God, we're heading out into a storm. But he says, if we postpone our journey until the storm dies down, we may never get started at all. Because there's always been a storm. As long as we live in a fallen world in which there are people who deny God and are opposed to God and his ways, we live in the midst of a storm. As Paul said, and as Peter says in the New Testament, we're basically we're pilgrims in exile. We're strangers in exile, and we're walking through a land that is not ultimately our home. So we have to uh, study and learn of God in the midst of that storm. So he says, simply do this, just ignore the skeptics. And he makes this great quote that kind of brings it home. He says, anyone who is actually following a recognized road will not be too worried if he hears non-travelers telling each other that no such road exists. Don't worry about what people say who are not on the road. So they're making all these comments about the road, but they've never even traveled the road. So what's more important is you're, you're someone who's actually on the road and you're engaging with that journey. So ignore the people who have no knowledge of that road, who've never even attempted to walk it. Just don't worry about what they say. Ignore the skeptics. This whole study of knowing God is built on five foundational truths he reminds us of in the first chapter. The first of those is that God has spoken to man, and the Bible is his word, given to us to make us wise unto salvation. Everything in that statement is gracious. Everything. God did not have to speak to us, did he? God was under no obligation to speak to us. He could have brought this world into existence and set it on its way without ever any direct communication or revelation from God at all. But that was not his plan. God graciously interacted with people, revealed his will to people. The Bible is his word. 
that's gracious too. Because in addition to God speaking to Abraham or speaking to Moses or to Isaiah, Paul, we now have God's revelation for ourselves that we can have and we can read from it and we can study and meditate on it. God's word has been recorded for us and preserved. That is a gracious thing. And it's given to us to make us wise unto salvation. This revelation of God tells us how we can be saved and be rescued and have a relationship with God. The second foundational truth is that God is Lord and King over his world. He rules all things for his own glory, displaying his perfections in all that he does in order that men and angels may worship and adore him. So just an acknowledgement. As we seek to know God, this is a foundational truth that God is the king of the universe. And as king, as creator, everything ultimately comes back to God. As Paul says in Romans eleven thirty six, for from him, through him, and for him are all things. So everything is referential to God because God is the author, the sustainer, and the finisher of everything in his world. So everything that he does, he does to display his glory, his perfections, so that we may worship him. A third foundational truth is that God is Savior. He is active in sovereign love through the Lord Jesus Christ to rescue believers from the guilt and power of sin, to adopt them as his children, and to bless them accordingly. So that foundational truth that God is a Savior, that God is a Redeemer, that needs to undergird our whole study of who God is. That whenever we think about the attributes of God, whether we think about God's knowledge, his sovereignty, his holiness, his mercy, any attribute of God, we need to think about it in, in the context of, one, the second point, that God is doing this for his glory, but third, God is doing this to save us. That, that God's being, God's purpose is for the benefit of his people, that he would save them and redeem them. And that's an amazing thought. That helps it keep from turning into an academic study, doesn't it? When you think about that, this great and awesome God, he is who he is, and he does what he does so that he might save me for his own glory. That's an amazing thought. Another foundational truth is that God is triune. There are within the Godhead three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the work of salvation is one in which all three act together. The Father purposing redemption, the Son securing it, and the Spirit applying it. So a, a unified, harmonious, triune God accomplishing in unison our redemption. And then the last foundational truth is this one. Godliness means responding to God's revelation in his word, in trust, in obedience, faith and worship, prayer and praise, submission and service. Life must be seen and lived in the light of God's word. This and nothing else is true religion. So going back to the first point, God has spoken. We have his word. So the way that we relate to God and the way that we know who God is, is through his self-revelation, through, through that which he has spoken in his word. He says along the way, these are the main themes that we'll look at. The Godhead of God. The Godhead of God 
are the qualities of deity which set God apart from humans and mark the difference and distance between the creator and his creatures. Such qualities as his self-existence, his infinity, his eternity, his unchangeableness. So the, the Godhead of God is what, what makes God God and that which is distinct from his creatures. We'll look at the powers of God, such as his almightiness, his omniscience, his omnipresence, his all-knowingness, his all-power, and the perfections of God. And these are the aspects of God's moral character, which are manifested in his words and his deeds. Things like his holiness, his love, his mercy, his truthfulness, his faithfulness, his goodness, his patience, his justice. And he says, we shall have to take note of what pleases him, what offends him, what awakens his wrath, and what affords him satisfaction and joy. And just before we move on from this, I would say that for us, the first two headings here, the Godhead of God, the powers of God, these are things that are descriptive of God and God alone. That we, we are not self-existent, but God is self-existent. God is almighty, omniscient. We are not almighty or omniscient. But then with the perfections of God, these are what you might could say are the attributes of God that we can, in, at least in some limited capacity, we can imitate in ourselves. So I can't imitate the omnipotence of God, but I can imitate his mercy. I can imitate his holiness, his righteousness. So these are the perfections of God that, that we seek to, as Paul says in Ephesians 5, be imitators of God with these perfections. So what is God? He gives here from the Westminster Shorter Catechism what Charles Hodge described as probably the best definition of God ever penned by man. He says, God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. This is the God that we want to know more of. We want to know him. And so we want to know God, but we want to apply that knowledge of God. And he says one crucial question that we have to ask ourselves in studying who God is, is our motive. What is my aim? Why am I doing this? What is my ultimate aim and object in occupying my mind with these things? What do I intend to do with my knowledge about God once I have it? So what, what's my desire? What is the purpose for why I want to know God? He says, if we pursue theological knowledge for its own sake, it is bound to go bad on us. It will make us proud and conceited. He says the very greatness of the subject matter itself, the, the deeper that we go into it, and we know more and more of it, there is a tendency to be lifted up in pride. The more theology, the more doctrine that we know. And we can start, if we're not careful, we can start to compare our theological knowledge with the lack of theological knowledge in other believers. And he says that is a completely wrong mindset for studying the Word of God. He says there can be no spiritual health without doctrinal knowledge, but it is equally true that there can be no spiritual health with it if it is sought for the wrong purpose and valued by the wrong standard. 
So we need to know God. We need to have theological knowledge from his word, but we need to do it for the right reason and not to know more than other people, to be lifted up in our, our pride, our wisdom, but so that we might relate to God in love and worship. So our aim in studying the Godhead must be to know God himself better. Our concern must be to enlarge our acquaintance, not simply with the doctrine of God's attributes, but with the living God whose attributes they are. We must seek in studying God to be led to God. And here there's a subtle distinction. And this goes to really the title of the book, Knowing God. Are we knowing facts or theological truths about God? Or are we desiring to know God? And that is a key distinction. We want to know God in a relational way. If, um, if someone were to ask me about my knowledge of my wife, they're not asking for me to list out facts of, you know, that she likes this, she doesn't like this, this is when she was born, this is her name. You know, that's not what it means to really know my wife. It is a relational knowledge, isn't it? Now, I have all those facts, and I know those things, but... Those things, that's not what I focus on. What I focus on is the personal relationship. And so the theological truths that we learn of God is really a means to drawing us closer to him in a relational way so that we might know him. He is the ultimate aim that we might draw close to him. How do we do that? How can we turn our knowledge about God into knowledge of God? He says, we turn each truth that we learn about God into matter for meditation before God, leading to prayer and praise to God. So we start with the information. We start with the truths that the Bible teaches us, but we want to move beyond that to thinking about God, to thinking what this is in relationship uh, uh, to God and, and being in relationship to him in his presence. And then a response of those truths that, that leads us then to interact with God, to pray to him, to communicate with him, to praise him, to thank him for who he is. So it, it moves from just truth and facts to really knowing God when we, through meditation, take it from information to relationship and communicating with God. So what is Meditation. Meditation is not Zen Buddhism or sitting in funny postures and making certain sounds. Uh, that is not biblical meditation. Meditation in a biblical sense is the activity of calling to mind and thinking over and dwelling on and applying to oneself the various things that one knows about the works and ways and purposes and promises of God. So, um, a Zen Buddhism, kind of Eastern meditation, is kind of a, a detachment from reality. Uh, the idea of Zen Buddhism and meditation is we want to take our thoughts and almost kind of separate them from ourselves and kind of hold them out here and kind of view them, kind of get behind our thoughts. That's the idea of Zen Buddhism. Uh, biblical meditation is, is not that. It is we want to bring truth into our minds. 
we want to bring what God has said about himself from his word into our thinking. And we want to hold that in front of our vision and, and think about it from different perspectives as it relates to our lives. So it's not, it, it is a desire to, to, it is a content filled meditation through his word. It is an activity of holy thought, consciously performed in the presence of God, under the eye of God, by the help of God, as a means of communion with him. Again, the ultimate aim is relationship, communion with God. So it has a purpose. Its purpose, he says in the chapter, is to clear one's mental and spiritual vision of God, to let his truth make its full and proper impact on one's mind and heart. It is a matter of talking to oneself about God and oneself. It is indeed often a matter of arguing with oneself, reasoning oneself out of moods of doubt and unbelief into a clear apprehension of God's power and grace. So in a way, meditating on God and on God's truths is like an inner dialogue that you're having with yourself, but in the presence of God, using the truths that God has revealed to you. And, and wrestling with those truths in relationship to God and yourself. So its purpose is to clear our minds of God, our vision of God, to let his truth make its full and proper impact on one's mind and heart. And its effect is to humble us. The effect of meditating on God is to humble us as we contemplate God's greatness and glory and our own littleness and sinfulness and to encourage and to reassure us. So we want to know God but we need to be humbled by these truths and not be lifted up in pride. 